Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. When you say conservative talk radio, it conjures up images of Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity, one of the most thoughtful, interesting presences on, uh, on conservative talk radio has been Hugh Hewitt, who had a long pedigree in government and politics as an aide to Richard Nixon uh, after his presidency, uh, working in the uh, Reagan White House and the White House Counsel's Office. Uh, he's a guy with an extraordinary set of associations and, an, and a fluent uh, grasp of policy. I don't agree with him on a lot of it, uh, but I respect him for the uh, intensity and the depth with which he thinks about it. I caught up with Hugh at the Republican National Convention in Cleveland, and we talked about uh, his life and where we are in our politics today. Hugh Hewitt, we're, we're here in, uh, in your hometown uh, for the Republican convention. You must still be buzzing with Cavaliers. Uh, Had a million fever. people downtown, David Axelrod. A million people and not one arrest for drunken disorderly during the parade. The night of the championship, they had five. But I'm actually from Warren, Ohio, but I came to every Browns game from 1965 to 1974. So I know my rail in downtown yeah. a little bit. So you yeah. caught some of the Jimmy Brown years. I, uh, unfortunately, he retired in 64, and I can't remember seeing it. I had Leroy Kelly and Ernie Green, uh, a little bit of Frank Ryan, but not Jimmy Brown. I, I can't remember. I grew up in New York, and, there was, uh, and Sam Huff was the middle linebacker for the Giants. And the, every time they played the Browns, the story, there was like no one else on the field. It was just Jimmy Brown and Sam, Sam Huff. Huff. Yeah. So, and uh, Y.A. Tittle would show up in a few of those stories. Yes, but, uh. <laughs> yes. But uh, so tell me about growing up around here. Tell me about how you, how you, uh, how you grew up. Warren, Ohio is a steel town of about now 40,000, uh, maybe 70,000 when I was in, born in 1956 and left town in 1974 to go to school. Uh, Irish Catholic. Uh, my dad's a lawyer uh, and my mom was a nurse and my dad was part of a firm that's been in Warren, Ohio for 150 years. All four of my grandparents are from Ashtabula, Ohio, which is a port town. One was a fireman, never voted for a Republican in his life. He lived to be 101, so I have to go another 40 years to catch up and offset him. Uh, now, was there a connection between not voting for a Republican and living 101 years? No, it was a, there was an FDR connection. He, he had a job during the Depression, and that was everything. Yeah, so yeah. he was a union Democrat, There's a fireman. A whole, there, there was a whole generation of folks yeah, like that. That's it. He yeah. could not understand what had happened to me. A.T. Uh, <laughs> was, was the last man in America named Adolf. He's a German Catholic. And he changed his name after the war began, but he became... Uh, this Democrat, my other grandfather, for whom I'm named, was a Republican judge, and their kids got married. One was Protestant Catholic, uh, Protestant Irish, one was Catholic Irish. So it was kind of a merger of opposites at the <laughs> beginning. But Warren is a great place to grow up, uh, tight Irish Catholic community, as you have in Chicago. I went to Catholic schools, nuns, the whole deal, the priests. And then uh, 
followed my brother to Harvard. Yeah, I was surprised by that. You had all the earmarks of a domer. <laughs> and I, I, I don't understand how you escaped, uh, or they escaped you. I had so many classmates go to Notre Dame. Uh, Keelan Garvey, O'Neill, and Molly McGuire, who maybe <laughs> listened to it. I mean, they all went. It was first year they admitted women. Uh, first four-year class of women to get through. And it was a very powerful lure. But my brother had gone to Harvard beforehand, and so I'd gone to the campus and liked it and thought, no, oh, this, is, this is more fun. My dad had gone to Oberlin, as had my oldest brother, yeah, and Oberlin had gone crazy, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that wasn't on the picture. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, you know, the, as I was uh, preparing to talk to you today, what struck me is you're like a real-life Zelig. Uh, at every stage in your life, you interacted with these people who ended up being very prominent in our history, and including your roommates yep. at Harvard. Talk about them. Uh, Mark Guerin was Bill Clinton's deputy chief of staff, then his comms director when George Stephanopoulos took a different job. Then he went and became his Peace Corps director, right. still very close to the Clintons. Dan Poneman was on the National Security Council for George Herbert Walker Bush, for Bill Clinton, and then came back as your deputy energy secretary yeah, and I stayed. had a lot of interactions with Did you, Well, the yeah. nuclear proliferation, obviously. And so Dan yeah. may be the smartest guy I know, Mark, and I just went to his uh, 60th birthday, and we were in a room full of people saying, this is the smartest guy we've ever met, so that's Poneman. I'm trying to figure out how you... Uh, uh, Grover Norquist was in the mix. Grover, too, right? John Brady, another political... Grover lived across the hall from us in Winthrop House. Uh, so Harvard in the 70s was actually kind of ambidextrous politically. There was a big, strong, conservative movement. Karl Rove came and taught me field school because he was the chairman of the college Republicans. So in 1974, he came to Harvard... And he taught field school to, um, you know, 50 freshmen on how to organize. And this was kind of uh, a Camelot thing because you couldn't possibly win an election in Massachusetts <laughs> in yes. 1974. But we tried. And so Rove showed up. So there is a Zelig thing. And, and the, the follow on to that is I didn't have a job at the end of college. And I didn't get into Michigan Law School where I wanted to go or Harvard. I got turned down. So I'm sitting on the step and Harvey Mansfield's son walks by and says, what are you going to do? I don't know. I haven't got a job. He said, I know a guy, which I think are the four most important words in America. <laughs> yes, exactly. I know a guy. I'm from Chicago. I know that. <laughs> I know a guy. Yeah. And, and have you ever considered? <laughs> I know a guy named Ray Price, whom you may have come across. Ray was President Nixon's chief yeah, speech sure. writer. He needs to hire a guy to be a, a research assistant in D.C. So I called up, made an appointment, went down, saw Ray. And he had forgotten I was coming, which is not a good sign. And he had accepted a job from RN, President Nixon, and San Clemente. But he took me along via David Eisenhower. So I ended up working for Richard Nixon and David Eisenhower first, but then Nixon and San Clemente. And, and how much exposure did you have to Nixon? I spent three or four hours a day with him. Really? For a year and a half. And what was your impression of him? Uh, best boss I've ever had, without question. Uh, the most solicitous of and protective of my career. Nixon always had young people working for him in his exile. And then when he went to New York, he had John Taylor and, and other, Monica Crowley and other young people always working for him. Because he knew there would come a time, and I, I don't know if President Obama has done this, where you've got, he's been dead for 20 years, but there's still people like me kicking around who can give a first-person interview and tell you he was wonderful. Mrs. Nixon was wonderful. Julie is still a very close friend. David will be here this week, in fact. Uh, how uh, how did, did he talk about his, uh, the, 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 his presidency and the way the presidency ended and Watergate and all of that stuff? No, always forward. It's an interesting mm -hmm. thing. We wrote a book called The Real War. I came on after Frank Gannon, Ken Kachigan, and Diane Sawyer wrote with him RN, The Memoirs. And mm -hmm. after the Frost-Nixon interviews, Frank mm -hmm. Langella did such a terrific job of physically being, you know, I have to ask did you. Did you feel that way? Yeah, he was terrific. Uh, Kevin Spacey was good and Elvis Nixon as well, but Langella got the awkwardness of President Nixon and the, the geniality, the 
the, the forced geniality because you're such a shy man. And yeah, it's a, this it's a, that always amazes me. You know that I don't know if you saw uh, Brian Cranston's performance in that no. HBO movie All the Way. No, but it, if you grew up in that era as you and I did, and you know I didn't know Lyndon Johnson, but you you know we saw a lot of him. Yep, uh, and he completely inhabited that character, not just his physical being, but also sort of his emotional uh, being. I've, That's I'm, saved I have on such, my thing. Uh, I have such uh, respect for actors. I just saw to... Brian Cranston in The Infiltrator. Yeah. Terrific movie. He's a, he's a just an amazing actor. You wouldn't yeah. know it from Malcolm in the Middle, right? You're kind of expecting <laughs> a, a light comedic. Well, we all start somewhere, you yeah. know. But, but interesting, did you ever meet Nixon? I never did. In his trips through Chicago? Never did, never did. Because once he got out of exile, when he went to New York, and we moved, I moved back to New York with him in 1980, uh, he then would, he took to the road, and he went everywhere. And I thought maybe in your Tribune days, he might have come. No, I, I, I never did. It would have been interesting. I'd, I'd like to have met him. I know uh, one story that the Daily Brothers tell is when Nixon was in the final throes of his presidency, he flew to Chicago to make a speech, and no, no one would come meet him. And Mayor Daley went out and met the plane. And uh, because he said, you know, the president of the United States is the president of the United States. And uh, I, that office uh, demands. Oh, good for Daley. Like, yeah. yeah. That is, that's absolutely true. Yeah. And uh, he lived a perfect lesson in you're never out. Yeah. You know, you can, you can always take another at bat because in 19... 19- 74, just before I got there four years, he almost died of phobitis and he was deeply depressed and, but just worked his way out of it. Had to work, had to make some money, didn't have any money. Uh, San Clemente Casa Pacifica just got put on the market by Gavin Herbert, who bought it from RN for $67 million. He didn't mm. sell it for $67 million. I'm sure not. 19, yeah. 1978 Well, probably the most, one of the most uh, dogged and persistent figures in American political history. Yeah. Five times on a national ticket, only FDR did that. And so... Uh, he was, we would talk about other people. He just wouldn't talk about Watergate. Uh So he would talk about the world. The book we were working on was a foreign affairs book, Looking Forward. And uh, Reagan would carry it around in the 1980 campaign to signal to people that he had a worldview that was both, and I think Trump could do this nicely as well, that he had a worldview that was more Have you tried to tuck a book under uh, Trump's arm? I'm going to. Robert O'Brien's got a new book out who was Bolton's deputy at the UN called um, uh, While America Slept. And it's about foreign affairs because uh, I don't think Trump spends a lot of time on national security stuff at all. Uh, how much time did you spend briefing up for the president? Uh, you mean during the campaign? Yeah, on national security stuff you know, specifically. You know, quite a bit. He had he had national security guys on his staff almost from the beginning, and he, you know he was a senator, so he had he was on the foreign uh, on the foreign relations committee, so he had staff, and so you know it wasn't a leap for him to. Uh, to, you know, as a candidate. You know the names. You're from the... That's why, like Pence, he did 12 years on foreign affairs. So mm-hmm. he will bring... And he's already brought some people with him to the campaign who will be more fluent in national security matters. Yeah, I want to get to that in a minute. I want to finish your story, and okay. then I want to get to where we are today because I'm interested uh, uh, in Pence. You went to law school. You clerked on the... Uh, a DC circuit, That's right. the second most prominent court in the country, and you came into uh, exposure with three future Supreme Court justices. This is the not, well, two future. I should, Robert Bork never made it. Never made it. But Antonin Scalia and Ruth, Ruth, Bader, Ruth Ginsburg. Bader Ginsburg. What were your impressions of them? They were very good to me. I, 
the circuit is very close. That's when Scalia and Ginsburg became friends. My judge originally was Roger Robb, whom you won't remember, but he had a stroke right before I arrived. So what you do in that case is the other judges give you cases until your judge recovers, in which case he never permanently recovered, so I was permanently assigned to George McKinnon, who's great, became my de facto judge. But Judge Ginsburg, now Justice Ginsburg, Judge Scalia then, then eventually Justice Scalia, Judge Bork, Judge Starr, Judge Skelly Wright, they all gave us cases. And we were great. They were terrific. And they were judges. Most of the time, this is not controversial stuff. It's most of the time, it's tax law and administrative law and uh, Administrative Procedure Act. So they were wonderful. And Scalia was the same person you see. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the powerful intellectual who was sweetest person you'd ever want to sit in a chamber. Were you surprised when she uh, spoke out as she did this week? Uh, yes. Week. Um, part of my, about Donald Trump. Part of my Zelig experience is having shared an office for a year with the Chief Justice of the United States and the White House Counsel's office. I was getting to that. And no so one will never, believe this, by yeah. the way. Everybody's going to go back and say, I want to check this out because nobody could come into contact with so many historic figures in one lifetime. Uh, but, but the Chief, when I see him now, I haven't seen him often since the beginning, he never talks. You couldn't get a political comment out of him yeah. with a crane, even in the confines of the Metropolitan Club with with Fred Fielding, you couldn't get a political comment out of him. So I think Justice Ginsburg just let slip that, and she regretted it, and she said she She said it. so. Yeah. You have a high regard for her? Yes. Yeah. I, I don't agree with her decisions, but she's a judge, judge's judge. Uh, I want to talk about John Roberts, your office mate. You went on to the White House Counsel's office, and yeah. because you always have to be assigned someone who's going to be a major historical figure, they gave you an office with John Roberts. Uh, what was he like? Well, the chief, uh, I tell, there were seven lawyers at that time. Uh, and I got to protect the seal of the presidency of the United States. And John Roberts got to interpret the 25th Amendment, how to make an <laughs> acting president. And he's a genius. And he's an affable, wonderful, amiable genius. And I'm one of the few conservatives that defend uh, the Obamacare decision. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. Because, you know, you, you, you were on debate panels uh, this year. You may have been sitting there when some of the candidates attacked Jeb Bush. I can't remember whether Donald Trump was one of them uh, because John Roberts, I think Donald Trump Ted did. Cruz did it a lot. Senator yeah. Cruz did it a lot. Yeah. Uh, was, uh, was, you know, a, essentially uh, a traitor is was the implication because yeah. of the uh, Obama. They overlooked Citizens United and a few other wonderful decisions that the chief has handed down and they focused on that. But I, I've taught constitutional law for 20 years and I believe in the principle that if you can avoid making a constitutional decision, you avoid making a constitutional decision. And I don't believe um, it is without merit that there was an argument that you could uphold Obamacare. And he found it. It's tortured, but he found it. And there is that Marbury v. Madison sort of saved the court. And after Bush v. Gore, they didn't really need to strike down uh, the first African-American president's central legislative achievement ever. If they had any other way out. And we can argue about this another time in another place about whether it's been a disaster or not. But I think the ruling will stand in uh, centuries ahead as a very, very wise ruling. One of the things that worries me is just how uh, our institutions are being uh, sullied uh, in the public uh, in the public discourse. It's dangerous, and um, you know. So I, you know, just as you disagree with many of the, I mean, I'm not a constitutional scholar, but there are things 
that I certainly would disagree with John Roberts about Citizens United sure. being one of them. Um, it really worries me that uh, you know we we go to the we go to the mattresses as they said on The Godfather uh, right away whenever we a decision is made that we dis that we might disagree with, and I worry about where we are if the court system uh, is uh, is treated in that. Did you think, Dave, did you review the State of the Union when President Obama challenged Citizens United and Judge Alito, Justice Alito said no? I was there, yeah. That was not a good moment institutionally. Right. Uh, the point could have been made a different way in a different setting, but I don't think anyone actually saw it coming. I don't, you know, if you read the speech, you wouldn't think, oh, the justices will be right in front of me. It's not one of those things you, you never think about the justices because right. they don't applaud, right? right? They just sit there. Right. And that was a bad moment, and, and it's escalated from there. Um, now we're in a very interesting moment because I approved of, I think I came up with the hashtag no votes, no hearings, no votes, because I don't want to fill the court until after, although I think the president's nominee might be confirmed the day after the election. If, Do you if, think that? Yes. I mean, I, I Merrick mean, Garland's you know, a center-left guy, not a lefty. No, I know Merrick Garland well. Oh, you do? Uh, I because he's from, first of all, he's from Illinois. He was well, a protege of Abner Mikva, who just passed away. Also on the D.C. circuit when yeah, I was he was a great guy, wonderful guy yeah, from was. Chicago. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, got, I had dinner with uh, Judge Garland when I was at the White House. Uh, because even then, you know, he was someone who everyone was, uh, had their eye on, you yeah. know. Um, he, here's my question. If, you, if, if there are no hearings, how do you confirm a guy? Uh, because you're the Senate and you don't have to do anything other than what you want to do. The Senate makes its own rules. Mm -hmm. So if Mitch McConnell brings it to the floor and they confirm him, he's on. So you think that if Hillary Clinton were elected in November that they would move to confirm Garland? It would be my strong that, hope. That she might appoint a, more, uh, a younger and more progressive... Uh, yeah, that it, what would be my hope that they would move immediately to confirm Judge Garland. Mm -hmm. Because he is a liberal judge. He is not... Um, to the far left of the ideological spectrum. Uh, your buddy, Cass Sunstein, I think he mm -hmm. would probably agree with me. I think of Professor Sunstein as being in a Merrick Garland mode. He would rebuke an administrative agency if it got out of control. Right. Some members of the academy whom a President Clinton might be drawn to would not. And so I, there's some advantage to the constitutionalist in having Garland. Mm -hmm. Would you, uh, but, but you, you, you're, you would be comfortable with Donald Trump appointing uh, members of the Supreme Court. I reviewed Court. his list. It's an excellent list. Do you think he reviewed his list? Uh, yes, but I don't <laughs> know that he knows them or interviewed them, and I don't think he cares about justices and judges, but he knows that it matters a great deal to my wing of the party. In fact, we were having this discussion last night with a group of people who be, remain nameless, media people, about how George W. Bush presidency broke on Harriet Myers. I think it broke on Terry Schiavo. And Katrina broke it again, but then Harriet Myers broke it a third time. So the year of terribles was 2005. But Harriet Myers was a moment where all the conservatives came out with their long... Except me, I defended the president. I don't think you ever go against your president. Do you agree with that? Well, uh, not publicly. I, no, look, I, you know, I, uh, I, there aren't that many instances in which I've felt... I can, can, can't think of many at all where I was uncomfortable with things that he's done. I've known him for a very long time. We've been friends for a long time. And I'm proud of him. I, you know, I, I, again, you and I have different views. But I, but I think that uh, he's an honorable man, and he makes the decisions based on what he thinks is best for the country. What I like about you and Rove and Carville, a little shining you on here, but not much, there are <laughs> only three people who have won two presidential elections, been strategists, you three. 
and all three of you are defined by loyalty to the guy that brought you to the party. And I've never heard Rove say a bad thing about Bush. I've never heard Carville say a bad thing about either Clinton. I've never heard you say a bad thing about President Obama. Yeah. And what's Carville's book called? Sticking. Yeah. yeah it's, it's a good book. No, no. Those. You know, I, I agree with you. I admire those guys for. Uh, I admire those guys for that. And I, I and I, you know, I can't speak to uh, the relationship between James and uh, and Bill Clinton. Although I think it was very warm and close. Um, you know, you talk to the George W. Bush folks, and. Uh, and to a person, they're, they're, they feel very warmly oh, about him. Yeah. You know, I have to tell you, when I, uh, when I, uh, the day I was, uh, the, that the president was sworn in, I was in the speaker's office and George W. Bush came in, and he had been terribly good to us, terribly is no wrong word, he had been a- a wonderful to us in the transition. And I said, uh, Mr. President, I've been on television this morning, I've been talking about you. And he said, well, I don't watch TV. And I said, well, let me tell you what I said. And, I, and I, I said, the way you guys have handled this transition to me was a real exercise in patriotism. And I really appreciate it. Did I tell you the story of the last Wednesday of his presidency? No. He had a half dozen talk show hosts to the Oval for an hour. And his, he opened it up by saying, I asked you here because I want you to go easy on the new guy. He said, this is a hard job. He will grow in the job. This is an incredibly difficult job. So that that's an off-the-record recalculation, yeah. but that's what it was. Go easy on the new guy. Yeah. Hard job. No, I, I and, and President Obama said to me uh, that the Bushes, both President Bushes, had given him a lesson in what uh, being a, a former president is all about and how to conduct oneself as a former president. So, uh, I mean, he really... Uh, small club, right? Yeah, it is Very a small, small club. club. I think people don't... You know, you've been around. I've been around. I've disgraced former president in exile. Yeah, it's it's a pretty weird situation. No, actually. but but uh, you've also been around a White House. Yeah, and you know, you worked for Ronald Reagan, yeah. uh, who wasn't a disgraced ex president. And um, you know, I don't think people. The one thing that I learned there was, uh, you know, regardless of what I felt about the record of a president, anyone who has to sit at that desk and deal with the things that come to that desk uh, deserves respect yeah. uh, because it's such a hard job. It's so much one. people don't know. And you got, you were so much closer. It's all, you know, I'm a junior lawyer. I'm yeah. a briefcase carrying lowest ranking lawyer in the White House counsel's office. But you still see stuff every day going up to fielding who takes it into the president and you just shake your head and say, wow, what a day they're having. Yeah, yeah. Still sticking to your story, uh, you made this... Uh, obviously very successful transition from uh, from government, from law, uh, to uh, talk radio. Um, how did that all come about? My media career is accidental, um, probably like a little bit like your political consulting career. Yeah, everything. KFI Radio yeah. called me up and said, do you want to do a weekend talk show when I was in L.A.? Because I was running the Nixon Library, getting it built. And someone will go run President Obama's library construction. Someone will be on site. That was me for Nixon. And they, I can talk. And they said, you want a weekend show? I said, sure, that beats working. And then the PBS affiliate heard me on the radio, and they called me up and said, do you want to do a television show at night for PBS in L.A.? And I said, that beats working. I said, yes. And then Salem called me up and offered me the nationally syndicated show in 2000 on the basis of the PBS show. And... Then CNN and Salem did the deal on the basis of the presidential debates, and, and I knew television, so I was the natural candidate among the Salem people to ask the question. And now I'm with NBC because of that experience. So it's an accidental career, and very, very blessed. Yeah. You, uh, 
you you enjoy obviously talk radio. Um, conservative talk radio has taken on a certain image, and it's really been uh, characterized mostly by Rush, uh, maybe uh, Glenn Beck. Um, but you you have a different kind of show, uh, and I've been on it, uh, and I appreciated the opportunity to talk about my book with you, and you were very generous, which I. I it's a great book. You. Believer is a. I, I recommended it last night to people. Oh, I told them I was doing it because of of your memo to the president in the Iowa campaign yeah. about how every election is a referendum on the last president. Right. I right. Said, people need to. That's what this is. Right. Yes. Well, I mean, I came to realize late in the game that the the, the antithesis of Barack Obama is Donald Trump, and therefore he could get some traction. Yep. Uh, in this race, even though. Uh, President Obama's numbers are pretty good right now, but certainly within the Republican Party, being the sort of anti-Obama was a really appealing. You know, it's uh, so odd. You, you came on my show in February of 2015, and we spent two hours talking about Believer. We did not mention the name Trump. Yes, I reread the transcript. Not <laughs> one word about Trump. I know. Trump. I know. I'm. You know. I should have trusted my own. It just seemed too fantastic. You know that he could step yep. into the scene and and dominate uh, the way he has. But if you think about it, uh, given my rubric, uh, I should have I should have you treated him more seriously uh, from the beginning. I want to move on to the presidential. But before I do, I just want to finish this discussion on. On uh, on talk radio, how would you distinguish yourself in your own mind, uh, if you do, uh, from what Rush does, from what some others do? Uh, uh, it's like a television network where different anchors have different styles and different shows. O'Reilly is different. Hannity, who is different from, um, uh, uh, let's say, Brian Williams, who is different from Lester Holt, who is different from mm -hmm. uh, Jake Tapper. They're all different. They all have different styles. Rush is the maker of the feast. And I always remind people he's the, he's the anchor store of the mall that is talk radio. He's the Nordstrom. And so if I'm the sports chalet in that mall, I'm very happy and grateful to Rush for inventing what was not known prior to 1989, a national talk show. It just didn't exist. Everything was local, governed by the Fairness Doctrine. In followed um, Michael Medved, my colleague at Salem, Dennis Prager. They run cerebral shows that are give and take and pretty high elevated. Along comes Mark Levin, my, my buddy from DOJ days, and Mark's a constitutional genius. He's also sparkier than I am. Um, he <laughs> likes to mix it up a lot more. And I don't think I'm that interesting, so I like guests. Some people are better monologists. And I can be interviewed, but I like to interview people. And I can talk to you for 20 hours if we had the time. I'd talk to you for 20 hours. You know Green Room. It's mm -hmm. just Green Room. My yeah, radio right. show is a Green Room on the air yeah. as this podcast. Is. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so there's a spectrum of talent out there on the radio which is diverse as television with one exception it's a more difficult medium for women uh because of the pitch of voice it's a purely pitch of voice thing um it's harder to listen to women in the car for some reason laura ingram's made a career of it but it's one of the few that have succeeded and then there are some people who are off the acceptable spectrum for me i won't mention their names they just they dive into craziness and they are they are not productive participants in the public discussion but you they know, get an audience they do i mean you can sell anything and it's left and right i mean there are people who are not the amplification of the extremes in the country is not good social media has engineered it talk radio began it but social media has taken it to a new pitch and we're living we talked before this began in perilous times because of the amplification of extremes uh, and they and it gets people uh, i don't want to buy into what President Clinton said about Rush after Oklahoma City. I never believed there was a cause and effect there. But I do believe that generally 
the fringes of the internet are driving the conversation to extreme levels. One of the things I remember about Rush was after, uh, right after Obama got elected, and we were in the midst of this uh, epic economic crisis, he said, well, I'm rooting for him to fail. And that struck me as wrong. Now, you know, you can argue, well, he was just saying, ideologically, he has such a different view of where we should go as a country that I don't want him to succeed. But if you believe in the one president at a time thing, and especially at a time of crisis, that struck me as the wrong the wrong note to say. See, strike. I always understood Russia's saying, and it's probably because I come from his side of the ideolog ideological spectrum, I don't want him to be able to pass Obamacare. I don't want him to be able to pass the um, uh, Dodd-Frank. I don't want him to be able to pass the stimulus, because I didn't want him to pass any of those things either. So to that extent, I want him to fail. I don't want him to be, I pray for the president every day, I'm a Christian, and I don't want him to be in any way assaulted or, or de uh, demeaned. But I don't want him to pass any more laws. <laughs> I don't want him to get a Supreme Court justice. I don't want well, him. Well, you just got six more months, brother. So <laughs> I know. Just ha it, hang in there. It's an interesting period of time. Are you talking to him often? I talk to him from time to time. I, yeah. I hope he starts to engage on the issue of race with right-wing conservative talkers like me, because that's the conversation that has to happen. He needs to go and talk to a lot of people about Chicago, his experience. Mm -hmm. Joy Reid and I have become. Yeah, you know, goofball friends, and we just have completely different experiences, which share in common only a Harvard undergraduate four years. But we can talk to each other, and left and right talking about race is the hardest thing to do. And well, you know, the one thing that I will tell you about him, and I've known him uh, for twenty five years since he got back from Harvard Law School, is um, he is he's always up for that. I mean, he's up for dialogue. I mean, that is who. That's really how he built his. His career, and it's what he believes in. Sometimes in Washington, it's hard to have those conversations, but... Um, Television doesn't give you enough time. This yeah. is the problem. Even if you do 60 minutes, it's 20 minutes, and they edit it down. And that, you have to let the president talk a while. I'll tell, I, you, I'll tell you one of the things that, I, one of the moments that I appreciated the most when I was there was, I don't know if you remember this, uh, this uh, seven-hour... Uh, Roundtable he had on the healthcare law before. It oh was, yes, oh yes. Uh, over at the Blair House. Oh yes. And I thought this is uh, this is good and televised. Yeah, um, this is good. Did, was that when Cantor? Uh, yeah, got into yeah, it with yeah, him, yeah, yeah. Eric Cantor got into it. But it was a, it was a healthy exchange, you know. And Did you remember uh, when he sparked it up with Pence? He went to the Republican yes, retreat in 2010 in People Baltimore. This, yeah, and and Mike Pence pushed at him. And the president pushed back, and it was good. It was great. It was it was great. You know, he he uh, often says, you know, uh, I like our system, but boy, that prime minister's question time looks kind of fun. It just you know? does, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. But um, uh, on, uh, we should talk about since you raised the question of race. Okay. Um, and the fact that we live in perilous times, as we sit here today, we just got the news of these shootings in Baton Rouge. This follows on the, the Dallas shootings of police and these incidents of police shootings of uh, citizens. As you and I were talking before we, we, we started uh, recording, um, you worry about the spiral that we're in. That's what I wrote a column for the Washington Examiner last week that said reversing the spiral. How do you, how do you reverse the spiral? L.A. went through this in 1992, and in fact, in 1992, there's a similarity. Then Governor Clinton flew to Los Angeles in the aftermath of the riots, and I began my television career in the middle of those riots, and President George Herbert Walker Bush did not get there in time, and that was a defining moment in the campaign, I thought. The president looked a little out of touch with what was an important issue. 
But what L.A. went through was they replaced Daryl Gates with Willie Williams, and they replaced Willie Williams with uh, Bernie Parks. And I, I knew them both because I was doing nightly television. Then those two gave way to um, Bratton, and then Bratton gave way to Beck. And each iteration has been more transparent and more collegial, and the department has become, over time, more reflective of Los Angeles. It's a great police department now. People have a lot more confidence in L.A. cops than they did when I started in L.A. in 1989 about being fair and uh, equitable towards all members of the community. That needs to happen in every major police, but I don't know how you get it down to the local level. The Minnesota shooting, uh, which was FaceTimed, is, is inexplicable to me. We don't know what happened. I'm not judging the officer. I don't know what happened, but it's inexplicable to me, and that's a smaller department. But the answer is, is um, Chief Brown in, in um, Dallas. Dallas yeah. It's an amazing. Powerful. Powerful. That was one of the most powerful set of remarks that I've, I've ever seen him in the wake of those shootings. Yep. Uh, and so moving, especially someone who's, who's uh, lost his son, son. his partner, uh, in incidents related to all of this. Well, I did mean, you know, had you heard of him before? I had not. Neither had I. Yeah. So the, no, the heroes... I, I, was, I, was ama- I, was, I sat there with my mouth agape as he spoke because of the moral authority that he yeah. showed. Did the, did the city of Chicago pick a police chief yet? Yes, yes. It, they, from they within the department? Yes, and um, an African-American named uh, Eddie Johnson, uh, which I think was the right call because I think um, you need someone who can talk to the police and talk to the community and be a bridge between them, and I think he has that opportunity. But, you know, um, the thing that worries me in Chicago and I, uh, is that, uh, you know, this is one place you say where I disagree. I don't really, I don't agree with the president that, um, that there's no impact on the psyche of police officers, all of this. It's only human nature to say, you know what, I think I better, I'm going to back off. And in some cases, they should back off. Uh, but, we, you know, you saw a spike in crime in Baltimore. I think uh, the same has been true in Chicago after some of the terrible incidents last year. Incidents, they were killings mm-hmm. uh, that were captured on tape by by a police officer. And, and uh, so... Um, you know, I, I worry because we have a terrible crime problem in Chicago. The same, this this young man, Laquan McDonald, who was killed by the Chicago police officer, mm-hmm. just in the same uh, period of time, there was a young man, uh, nine years old, a kid, not a young man, a kid, who was lured away from a basketball court by a gangbanger who took him into the alley and, and assassinated him as retribution because the kid's father was a gangbanger and the little boy was found in the alley. I still get verklempt thinking about it with his basketball a couple of feet away from him. And I grieve for Laquan McDonald. I grieve for that little boy. Uh, And I just worry that we're in this spiral where uh, instead of building relationships between police and community so that uh, together we can deal with these terrible issues of crime, particularly in the inner city, uh, you know, we're driving, our, we're, we're driving this chasm that, that only results in more violence. Dill Wilbur, who's the LA Times Justice Department reporter, just wrote a book called A Good Month for Murder. He embedded with the Prince George's County Homicide Squad for two years. And uh, in the month of February 2015, there were 21 murders in Prince George's County. Uh, I think 19 of them connected to the importation of drugs from Mexico and abroad, that highball and heroin stuff that's the new new killer. And the epidemic of violence among the drug-related community is wildly beyond the imagination as, um, as 
uh, Leon Wolf at Red State, a conservative writer, admitted, you know, Anglo middle class, upper middle class, and upper class America has absolutely no idea what living in the high crime areas of the United States. Is. Although what's interesting is the drug issue is now sort of leaching into all very communities. Yeah, very, uh, in, in Ohio, Rob Portman is a, is a friend and a great senator. I, mean, I think I, uh, one of the best men in the Senate sponsored the, the a comprehensive uh, addiction recovery act recently. And he told me there are more deaths as a result of drugs in Ohio than car accidents now, which is overdoses. Yeah. So it's kind of a stunning Thing that one would assemble with the French connection in the 70s kind of thing. Let me ask you, the libertarians would suggest that drug laws themselves have been counterproductive and that we should take the money that we're uh, using to prosecute particularly nonviolent offenders who are drug users and um, we should uh, uh, instead invest it in treatment. Um, what do you think about that? I, I spent four months in Colorado at Colorado Christian University teaching last year for my old friend Bill Armstrong who passed away last week. Yes. Great American, great senator. And he was running CCU for a few years and he asked me to come and I taught. And so I saw Colorado up close. I would tell him, go to Colorado, go down to the 16th Street Mall, see how many teenagers, 7,000 teenagers who are in that city who are homeless. And they go there for the dope. And they, they do petty crime for the dope and dope is easily available everywhere. It is not an answer. It is a volcano of addiction. Let's talk about Donald Trump. Okay. Um, I have my Trump tattoos. Should I show you this? I got a couple. Yeah, of is is it uh, one? Is it one of those that you put on your arm and you can wash off? Or no, no, it's in the back there. Is, is it actually yeah. a permanent, yeah. a permanent one? Because you had him on your show uh, fifteen times, during the, and yeah. and you asked him some basic questions. Uh, you know the the Kurds and the uh, that he uh, the the Iranian uh, special forces. He answered. he misheard. He heard Kurds. Did he mishear? I think he did. I give him that one because that happens in radio to me so often. Unless you're looking at someone, you can often mishear. He didn't know the triad on the radio, and he didn't know the triad when I asked him in the debate. So that one I don't give him. But uh, Kurds, Kurds is something some, you can go some with. Confusion about Hezbollah and Hamas. That he admitted to. He didn't know the difference. Yeah. That's pretty basic, uh, especially the Israelis kind of noticed. Yes. That's Iran, North. Exactly. <laughs> you, you're, a, you're a very, very fluent guy in policy. You've been around I've tricked some, you, David some brilliant, brilliant uh, people in public life. Um, do these things worry you about Donald Trump? Um, I wish everyone was more interested in national security than they are. Uh, that's probably reflects my beginning with Nixon. That's all he thought about. It's all he cared about. He actually signed the Endangered Species Act, which is a terrible law. And I asked him once, why did you sign it? He said, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. I wasn't paying attention to that stuff. You know, the National Environmental Policy Act, the Clean Air Act, he didn't care a lick about domestic policy. He was about China and Russia and MIRVs and and so that's I, what by I, the way, appreciated some of those initiatives. But, yeah. I know, and, and we have a whole wing in the library that nobody visits because it's all the bad laws he signed. Uh, so it's a... Uh, I, I, I should go and up the attendance. At the, least you would those, be the only guy in the rooms. NEPA room. I think, I think he'd be the only guy in the national... But he did more environmental law than any other president, including yeah. Roosevelt. Yeah. But no one spends enough time on that. And I don't know if it's your experience that it's the hardest thing to do. Um, and I, I told Donald when he was last on, Donald Trump was on, I said, your campaign against President Obama ought to be six words. Lead from behind, red line, JVs. That's the six-word summary of the presidency. Yeah. So those are all three national security issues now. Yeah. But he, uh, but as you know, 
if you're president, you have to get behind beyond the six words. Yes. And you have not to, if you're a candidate, though. <laughs> if you, exactly. No, it's different. It's obviously different. Yeah. Um, but um, but it seems pretty important, especially in in an unstable oh. a world like this. The Jeffrey Goldberg piece in the Atlantic, I thought, was a, a very in depth look inside of the decision matrix of a president in this particular world. Um, I, I think I discussed with you on the air. Uh, the, the worst decision of the Obama presidency will be the failure to extend the status of forces agreement in 2011 uh, because we lost the peace. We can debate that forever, but that's my worldview. Cool. But there are reasons not to have extended it, which have some beyond the control of the United States of America. Yes, like uh, the resistance of the Iraqi right. government to doing the, it. Ma- Maliki uh, right. turned out to be a dud. Right. right, turned out to be a bad I mean, guy. Yes. And so I mean it does the the one of the things that makes it such a vexing situation is and the president said this many times, you know, you can't unless people are willing to find a way uh, on the ground, the parties on the ground politically to coexist, it's very very difficult. And we saw that. Yeah. Uh, you know, Maliki tried to press his advantage uh and uh and you know, he Went after the Sunni and, he, and the Kurds, uh, and you know you got what you got. The other time we went to the Oval with W, half dozen again talkers. Mm-hmm. This was in August one of two thousand and seven. Uh, we were late getting in because he was on a teleconference with Maliki, and he got off the conference. I can't quote the president again directly, but to, something to the ex, to the order of a senior government official said they don't learn quickly over there how to run parliamentary democracies. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the questions I have, having been there, and you've been there, and you've studied this for a long period of time, is um, what, you know, how much humility should we have in, in, in thinking about what we can actually do uh, in terms of situations like this? Uh, you know, the United States military can pacify any area. They could go in right now, and there's no doubt if we send enough troops, we could take out the uh, the last remnants of ISIL who are sort of being shrunken as we speak. Uh, but the question is then what in terms of governance? And do you have to stay there in perpetuity because they can't find an accommodation? I, um, <clears throat> I don't want to overstate my experiences. I've never been in the Oval Office when a serious decision was made. Uh, I did spend a lot of time with a former president, which is a different yeah. kettle. If they have perfect hindsight, right? When they're out of office, everybody knows what they should have done and shouldn't have done. But I, I, I will say that Nixon talked a lot about the South Korean Peninsula as being an example of how America exerts uh, force abroad. The rebuilding of Japan, we're still in Okinawa. South Korea, it's been 1950, so you know, 66 years uh, since the truce, 65 years since the truce. Um, it's a, it's a but long-term you did, but you did, But you didn't have... You didn't have the kinds of forces that one has to contend with in the Middle East, these these sort of ancient... Uh, uh, the Sunni-Shia conflict is by far the most complicated tribal conflict on the planet. And right. Stephen Pressfield, who's one of my favorite authors, says it's all about the tribes. And Alexander the Great failed in Afghanistan, and the British failed in Afghanistan, and America hadn't failed there yet, but it, it's a difficult situation. Describe to me, uh, Hugh, uh, what you think... Um, Donald Trump's foreign policy is? I mean, what's his general orientation toward foreign policy? Teddy Roosevelt, great white fleet. He's going to build a lot of boats, going to hire up a lot of soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, going to put the Ohio-class submarine in the water, 
going to spend big deficits. His stimulus is going to be a defense package, and then he hopes not to use it. So it's it's going to be a. Uh, I don't think he correctly characterizes President Reagan's foreign policy because President Reagan intervened in Grenada. He bombed Gaddafi. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush did Panama. Um, we, he also withdrew from Lebanon. He withdrew from Lebanon after the attack. He also armed the Afghan Mujahideen. So he was aggressive, but he wasn't um, preemptive. He was aggressive, but Grenada was sort of preemptive. Uh, so I think Donald Trump understands himself as a Reagan a foreign policy conservative. Maybe Cap Weinberger would be the best analog. Cap Weinberger never used force unless you go in over it. The Powell Doctrine, overwhelming force, win quickly, get the hell out. Um, but what about a say? You know, he said at one point that he would, uh, you know, he would bomb the hell out of ISIL. Um, wh- what about that? What next question? What about the? Okay, and then what? Uh, the, that will go to who does he bring in for his national security team? Now, I think John Bolton has, for example, one of the most comprehensive understandings of the world, and it's very Reagan-esque. It's not uh, neocon. It's very Reagan-esque. Uh, I think Bolton would have a serious role there. I think John Kyle, who you had to have dealt with would be a very steady hand at the Department of Defense. There are people like Tom Cotton, who's actually fought in the war, who would be advising him on this. So I think the appropriate use of American force, the what after question, if you have enough of a timeline and you go to the American people and you persuade them again and again and again that the alternative, we saw the alternative in Nice, we saw the alternative in Orlando, it's it's an alternative question. There are no easy solutions. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, t- talking about Nice, what would, um, what would a big defense build up have done to stop the Nice uh, truck, um, I don't know what you would call it, but the, the, the massacre uh, with a truck, with a vehicle as a weapon. One of the things Secretary Clinton said in this campaign that I agree with this after Nice, she said we need an intelligence surge. Uh, I think she means by that um, a vastly expanded CIA human intelligence operation, a vastly expanded cooperation with DGI, the French uh, the MI6, and all of this that we actually become a, a, a much more cooperative uh, set of agencies. A new book by Daniel Silva, The Black Widow, is a novel. One of my favorite novelists, but it talks about the realities of intelligence. That's one thing you would do. Uh-huh. But, but the reality of where we are, and I don't want to belabor this because we've got other stuff to talk about here. We're sitting here in Cleveland at the beginning of this convention, is uh, that uh, there is progress being made versus uh, ISIS in uh, their so-called caliphate. They're being driven back and driven back. And one of the uh, assumptions is the reason that they're striking out uh, or their agents are striking out elsewhere is because uh, they're losing on the ground. So this is more of an intelligence issue, is it not? I don't know. Raqqa is an address. Um, The United States Marines and the United States Army working with the Jordanians and the Saudis ought to have been in Raqqa a long time ago. And I would not, we'll never agree on this. The red line decision was a terrible decision. And um, it telegraphed to Assad that he was staying. That meant that the Civil War was never going to end and that meant we would never go against Raqqa. Uh, I expect the next president has to remove Raqqa because it has an address. They have to go to, um, to uh, to Libya as well. And they are going to Mosul. That's good. He, you mentioned Tom Cotton. He was on your pronounced list of potential running mates for Donald Trump. He didn't choose. Uh, I forget who the other. I wanted Christie or oh, Trump. Oh, yeah, Christie, yes. Dan Sullivan, I thought, was a good choice, who showed up briefly in some of them because, again, he'd fought the war. 
if you'd prosecuted terror or fought terrorists, you were on my short list. Uh-huh. But you ended up with Mike Pence. Yeah. Uh, but you're enthusiastic about Pence. Yes. It, he won my first choice, but I, I've seen the effect he's had. And I think about down The effect ticket, he's had where? Uh, on party regulars. Mm-hmm. People like me who are mm-hmm. Republican. Uh, Rob Portman needs help. Uh, Pat Toomey needs help. Kelly Ayotte needs help. Joe Heck could win in Nevada. We got to keep the Congress. Mike Pence is going to be out there raising money for Republican seats and telling regular Republicans, conservatives from the old Reagan coalition, stick with our party. We're still conservative. Donald Trump may be different, uh, but he, as Mitch McConnell told me, he can't change the party. He can change the presidency. He can't change the party. And I think that's important for Pence. Did you watch the announcement of No, I was in the air flying from uh, California. You should take a look at that tape because as I'm sure you've read the coverage. I've read the coverage. But it was very he, Trumpian. David, you're, you're the, the expert. I'm not. Isn't he? The rules don't matter. Tom Brokaw said this on Meet the Press. Gentlemen, we are still using the old rule book. When are we going to learn? It yes. doesn't matter if he doesn't talk about Mike Pence. He well, the only, issue, the only issue. Yeah, it's true. The only issue is uh, by marginalizing your running mate on day one, uh, what message does, does it send? Now, maybe conservatives don't care because... They've got a guy who, with his foot in the door. That's it. I, I think if, uh, as, as Vice President Biden has been to President Obama, so would Vice President Pence be to President Trump, a trusted, quiet connector. But, but don't you need to see some sign of trust? Uh, I mean, what, what is it about? They have such different views on so many issues. I know. Uh, Mike Pence got elected the head of Republican Study Group, which is this orthodox conservatism, and then the chairman of the conference, which means he can get along with moderate Republicans and center-right and, and conservatives. So he's got people skills, and he's got policy chops that don't agree and line up. Free trade. He was an NAFTA guy, and Donald Trump is not. So it's, it, it'll be an unusual ideological pro- uh, but where Biden and, and, and Obama disagreed, the president won, right? So the president wins. Well, there's no doubt about it. But don't conservatives want the vice president to win in this case? Uh, yes, they do. And, and hopefully, because I think Donald Trump, I give him a lot credit for when he becomes interested in something, mastering it. That's what developers do. I'm sure you've worked with them in, in different situations over the years. Developers are project specific. I've represented them for years. They throw themselves into a project. They get it done. They put it away. They move on to the next deal. He will do that. And I have confidence he'll do it well. Yeah. I mean, the problem with the presidency is you've got a thousand projects going on at once. I mean, one of the stunning things about it, when you sit there, is you realize presidents from hour to hour are dealing with completely different things. Just think of the last 48 hours in your old office. Right. Or actually the last 72, if you go back to Nice and then you go to Turkey and then you end up in Baton Rouge. The, yeah, I know. No, it's a, and you know, I think we've, we've, uh, the, the view of the presidency is such. Now, the president's expected to deal with every single thing that happens. You can't escape that, and so you have to be a- equipped and prepared to deal with it. One more thing on, uh, on Trump. Uh, Chicago Tribune uh, wrote uh, in this morning's paper, as we sit here today, uh, the, now this is a conservative editorial page. The bombastic real estate mogul doesn't have the experience or intellect to be president. He's offered empty and offensive policy proposals, big applause lines on the campaign trail, but alarmingly incoherent as a governing uh, philosophy. You were saying stuff like that uh, earlier in the year. Judge Curiel upset me a great deal, um, and I was ready to, to leave ship. 
uh, if that and did you, not stop. Here's a quote from you. It's like ignoring stage four cancer. You can't do it. You've just got to attack it. And he didn't ignore it. That's why I, I was not the only one saying that, but I like to think that that uproar uh, changed the direction of the Trump campaign and made a mark with uh, Mr. Manafort, with the exit of uh, some campaign staff, the addition of others, that you cannot be cavalier with your language with regards to race in the United States. You can't do it. And that message was, I think, clearly communicated, not just from me, but from hundreds. So they treated that, which was a, an imprecision in language, a, a, a disregard for the conventions we've come to talk about race. It's not a Mexican judge from Indiana. He's an Indiana judge of Mexican ancestry. It's hugely, I don't think it's Donald Trump is a racist. Yeah. I don't, I, I've talked to him 15 times. I was on four debate. He is indifferent to the language of race in a way that communicators can't be. Or is he using race as a political device? You know, they said that about Nixon at 68, and it's probably true. The Southern strategy is probably true, encouraging Wallace, law and order. I don't believe that's Donald Trump. I don't, that would, that would credit him with more of a grand scheme than I think he has. His <laughs> grand scheme is make America great, which is a, uh, he's a tractor beam for the disappointed in the country. That's what I think. I think people are disappointed from all walks of life. They're disappointed with President Obama, or they're disappointed with the Republican Party, or they're disappointed with their own lives, and they like Donald Trump. You, you mentioned law and order. You know, that was today, as soon as the news of Baton Rouge hit, he, and he mentioned this twice in his press conference yesterday, he, uh, law and order was a phrase he used, we're the law and order party, I'm the law and order candidate, and today, in, in response to Baton Rouge, he said, uh, we demand law and order. Uh, do you see uh, Do you see intimations of the '68 Nixon campaign there? There are, and I and I wonder who is actually helping if they've tested that. I asked a, a Trump campaign operative today if they're testing that, because in '68 it meant a racial connotation. Yeah. This time it means I'm with the police, and that is a very powerful message that a lot of people. I was watching the cops today over in at, at lunch. And this place has got a million cops, right? Every policeman yes. in Ohio is here. The yeah. state troopers with their Smokey the Bear hats and all the police are all over. And I was having lunch and the Baton Rouge shoot, uh, shootings were on the TV above three officers behind me. And they kept looking up. And, you know, I'm with them. I, I think that we are underestimating the stress, as you mentioned early in the conversation, that they are under and the consequences of this spiral. And I think people have to speak very clearly that it is unacceptable to threaten or front. Uh, I got stopped for speeding going to the Reagan Library for the first debate. And uh, the officer let me off uh, after I played the debate card. He said, well, I'm rushing. I got to get, I was going from Stanford down to Simi Valley. And he let me off as a chipper. And he said, I'll let you go, but I want you to ask these candidates. <laughs> I said, why? He said, ask them when they're going to start supporting the police. So I gave uh -huh. Tapper the question. He brought it up in his question wheel. Uh, and he explained and to me. Now you have a lifetime pass. You can drive as fast as you want down <laughs> there. But he, he said he gets fronted every night. And that's when, it didn't happen even three years ago, when all kinds of suspects, black, white, red, yellow, green, get in your face as an officer and get in your grill as opposed to compliant respect, which is what we ought to teach our kids about police. Well, and mutual respect. I mean, that's the thing that you talk about in Los Angeles is very, very important because yeah. absolutely, you know, I, I used to be a police reporter. Oh, yeah. And I saw right. all, I, I worked nights, so I saw police do heroic things and occasionally uh, reprehensible things, but the, on the main, in the main, they put themselves in harm's way every night. I was always aware of the fact that they had families, uh, and they wanted to get home to their families 
you know, just like everybody else. So, I mean, I have a high regard for Have uh, you told the police. story on your podcast? I know we're running low on time, but have you told the story on your podcast of the cop that came to tell you about your dad? Yeah, well, that was, a, that was something that really, you know, people think of police uh, as essentially guys with guns going after other guys with guns, but they have to do a lot of other things. Right. One of them is occasionally to have to deliver bad news. And I will never forget the police officer in Chicago. His name was Gardner who came and knocked on my door when I was uh, when I was 19 years old to tell me that my father had committed suicide and that, that he'd, his body had been discovered in New York and that I had to go home. And a few years later, uh, when I was a, new, a reporter, uh, I was uh, reporting out a police, uh, a, a, a crime story, and I called a, a, a cop shop, a, a district, and he answered the phone. And uh, he said, uh, hey, are you the kid that I talked to back a few years ago about your dad? And I said, yeah. And he said, you know, I always wondered how it worked out for you. I'm so glad you're doing well. And it was a touching. Sure. That's moving, what, 10 years later, 15 years later. Moving, moving moment. But, uh, um, but I, you know, I do, I do worry honestly about, we need to sort of lower our voices and de-escalate what is becoming a really alarming um, chasm between uh, the community and police. And I'm not sure uh, the law and order riff uh, is going to do that. I think it, I think it, it is it, it may be exploitative and helpful uh, with uh, Donald Trump's base. He's not getting many minority votes right now. One would argue that he could do well to get some in order to win this election. But I, I think part of being president, you saw President Obama wrestle with that in Dallas, is to uh, is to try and be the president of everybody in moments like this, and speak to speak truths to to everyone. The de-escalation of rhetoric, unfortunately, in this campaign, and I, I said this this morning on Meet the Press, the campaign has become disconnected from events in the world and the country. It's about the negative. I'll test my theory off on you just very quickly. We all presidents being human are deeply flawed. We learn their flaws. Usually the office shows that this is the first presidential campaign when the flaws of both candidates are well known to the public and being debated, their choice being debated on flaws, not values and policies. It's disconnected. And I don't know how you ever reconnect it. And I don't know how those two. Well, these conventions will be interesting because generally you use your convention to tell your story. And honestly, the most successful conventions are the ones that tell a positive story and deliver a positive message. Bill Clinton remade his image in 1992 at the Democratic Convention. You'll remember George H.W. Bush had a great convention in 1988. That pilot, that pilot. Picture of the sh- of the of the plane when he was being rescued. Yeah, yeah I mean it, it really uh, it really changed people's perceptions of him. I don't know if these candidates can change uh, perceptions. And uh, you know, you're talking about in Trump, a guy with sixty percent negatives, uh, uh, Secretary Clinton with fifty four percent negatives. Do you think that that guarantees sort of a war of attrition? Yes. It's, I call it the voter misery index, and I, I add up the negatives of the two candidates. I don't think we've ever been even remotely close to 115 and, and, or 120. And so it will be World War I of political campaigns. And in the end, voter suppression, not technically the what people refer to about voter suppression, but voter exhaustion with this campaign may change the outcome. Brexit tells me I don't trust any poll. Yeah. None. Zero. I actually think the polls—now, pollsters always— 
they, they cringe when I say this. I think the polls on Brexit actually influenced the outcome because I think that uh, people saw a vote for Brexit as a no-cost vote because safe, they thought it was going down. Safe vote. Yeah. Huh. And, I, and, you could, and that could, you know, in some ways benefit uh, Trump. I, I think the demographics of the country are operating against Donald Trump in this campaign. And I, you know, I think he's boxed himself in in a way that's going to be very hard to He has hard to win to Michigan, out. Pennsylvania, and Ohio. That's yeah. a trifecta we haven't done since, what, 1984? Yes, I don't I don't, I, and I think Michigan is very, very difficult. Ohio's close. I think Pennsylvania is like fool's gold. It's like Missouri for Democrats. It's like every <laughs> every election, it looks like you can win it, and then at the end, Romney went there on the night before the election. Right, it was like Charlie Brown in the football. Right, every Republican goes to Pennsylvania. I think the, the other piece is Florida, and what, but I think yeah. because of the large number of Hispanic voters yeah. there, he's he's at a uh, he's at a disadvantage uh, down there. Uh, what do you expect from these conventions? Um, I have no expectation because I think we're in uncharted territory. If Hillary Clinton picks Admiral, uh, you could have probably Stavridis. been a keynote speaker. You know, they, oh, they, 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 they put these things up in. on. I offered on, to interview Craigslist. one of the Trump children. I sent a note in. <laughs> if you want me to interview one of the Trump children, I'll be happy to do that. Yeah. Uh, but if she picks the admiral, the former ambassador to NATO, I think the election may be lost uh, because he's the most trustworthy. The accidental admiral, you probably know him. I just read his book. He's got such integrity and such thoroughgoing charm that her negatives would be offset in a pretty powerful way. Um, if she picks uh, Senator Kane or uh, Governor Vilsack, um, it'll, it'll, Iowa is actually in play, uh, which I didn't expect. And Missouri will be in play. Trump can win. Trump can win. I, I, I don't think it's What easy. do you rate the odds? Uh, Hillary's a two-to-one favorite. How's uh-huh. that? Yeah. You, we should give you, uh, you, you've uh, been pretty tough on her. Um, you, you feel like she's compromised herself on this email issue from a security standpoint? Yeah, the, I call it the server issue. I've never cared about the foundation. I, I don't give a lick about that. Um, because foundation, they do good work in Haiti. And he traveled with President George W. Bush doing a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so, in Africa. Yeah, there, there may be some shady occasional deals. But I care about the fact that um, your deputy director of the CIA, uh, Mike Morrell, told me on the air that it was a certainty that hostile intelligence agencies had access to her, her server. That means in real time it was compromised. That means they have a book on her that they can read. And I'm sure you had those briefings. You had SCI clearance like I did at the old days at DOJ where they know everything about you. And they, So if I took David Axrod and you gave me five years of all of your electronic communications, not only those that you sent, but those that you received, imagine the leverage I would have on Hugh, you. Hugh, uh, we, uh, we were recording Angela Merkel's cell phone. Yeah. Uh, don't you believe in this world in which we live that everybody knows everything about everybody? No, I think we're better than the rest of the world. Uh, no, but, I, but, but, but my point is this. Um, uh, I suspect that they would have rich intelligence on her and anyone else who's a leader of the, uh, you know, en- uh, enemies of the country and friends of the country. Yeah. So I, I just think that's it's the world in 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 which we live. So I mean, I I just I don't accept your your pre- but, my premise, yeah. And but I but I will say this, uh, you. Uh, I have admired the grace with which you have navigated your way through these rocky shoals of Republican <laughs> politics these last uh, few months. It's only, and all I can tell you, it's only four months to go, so uh, y- you may make it. Thank you. It was yeah. great fun talking with you, David. Thanks, you, Hugh Hewitt. Great, great guy and uh, great guest. And uh, you will ask the president for that interview for me. I'm going to do okay, it. Okay, thank I'm you. going to do it. <laughs> 
Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.